Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 to 23. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at the last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content uh, whatever the circumstances. I know what is, uh, is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things, uh, all this through him who gives me strength. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I decide your gifts, what I desired is that more, be, uh, that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent, they are fragrant offerings and acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The people are the brothers and sisters who are with me. Send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially uh, those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace and the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Before I launch into our final talk in our sermon series in Philippians, I just want to give a quick ministry update. Uh, this is to follow uh, our vision meeting a few weeks ago, and as well as uh, since we farewelled uh, a staff member who's our Sunday service director. So I want to be giving weekly updates on terms of more immediate things that uh, the elders and I are doing and hopefully we can, uh, at some point, have at our next vision meeting, talk about more longer-term, medium-term plans for our church. I have met with the Canterbury Community Group twice to uh, discuss with them in terms of uh, where their community group will be going uh, since Luke and Em have um, since left our church, um, and we are looking through different options. Um, Kevin and I are now overseeing all the Sunday service ministries and teams, and we've drafted together a roster with uh, a new crash. Uh, we're looking to put in a, you could say, interim crash until we commence our renovations of the building, which will include a cry room. Uh, and so that gives uh, Kevin and I uh, 12 weeks um, to oversee all the ministries uh, related to Sundays until I appoint a new uh, leader to oversee music and welcoming and morning tea and things like that. Uh, I hope to meet with a welcoming team in the next few weeks just to give them guidance uh, in terms of the next 12 weeks. We'll be doing a new sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And I've also planned to have a, a meeting with our community group leaders this Saturday uh, just to talk about any potential changes to our community group leaders. Um, we are going ahead with community breakfasts as well as potluck lunches. So we're doing 
this every first Sunday of each month, alternating each month with a community breakfast or a potluck lunch. Uh, this is a, uh, some really uh, good opportunities to connect with the local area, but also provide some more space and opportunities for more fellowship. Um, session, which is our eldership, has met with Luke Tattersall and Daryl So. Um, they are, uh, you met Daryl, he's the minister at Abbotsford Presbyterian, and Luke is the minister at Balmain Presbyterian. Both of them were part of our interim eldership when we were starting up as a church. We sought their advice and counsel uh, as to how our church can move forward. And one of the outcomes out of that is that we've decided to appoint an assessor elder. Uh, so not only just to have once-off uh, catch-ups with Daryl uh, and Luke, but also to have an elder from one of their churches to be part of our session uh, from now until the end of the year uh, to provide some external feedback uh, as to how we can plan for our church going forward. So let me pray uh, before we uh, get into today's sermon. Heavenly Father, we ask that you open our minds and our hearts to your word. Father, we trust that you will speak timely words to the situations in our life. And so we give thanks for the way you have spoken to us in Philippians. And Father, help us to listen attentively with the view that you have the power in your word by your spirit to change us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we're now in the last talk of our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Philippian church. It's a letter about Jesus and it is a letter about joy. Paul shows us in this letter in a very personal way. He opens up his life and his heart to show us that in Jesus Christ, we can have a supernatural joy. Even in an unlikely place like the church in Philippi, a church in challenging circumstances. We've learned so far in this letter that the reason why the Philippian church was in a challenging place was because the church was facing opposition externally and unfortunately disunity internally. Paul was personally in a challenging circumstance. He was imprisoned in Rome whilst he was writing this letter. He was awaiting trial before Caesar with his own life at stake. And to make matters worse, leaders in the church were envious of Paul. They resorted to stirring up trouble for him with a painful smear and slander campaign to put his reputation, um, to tear that apart. However, as Paul writes this letter, the apostle is not defeated in spirit, but instead he is triumphant. He's a joyful man who is rather needing encouragement is the one that is lifting others up. Paul shows to us the real possibility to live above our circumstances, not under them. Paul shows us how in Christ we can be joyfully content in crisis rather than being crushed by it. And so Paul says in verse 10, Rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Paul is greatly overjoyed that God has provided for his needs through the generosity of the Philippian church. Paul explains there was a time where the Philippian church was concerned for Paul but didn't have the opportunity or lacked the means to financially support him through his troubles. 
But now that the Philippian church can resume their financial gift, their financial support, he is deeply grateful and joyful. But Porsk. But he did, we see that in verse 11, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what is to be in need. I know that what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul continues to say that whether he's financially supported or not, he's joyfully content. Paul admits that contentment is something that he had to learn even as the great apostle. And he didn't learn it in a day in a classroom. He learned contentment in the school of life. He learned contentment through the, a lifetime of ups and downs. The laboratory of his life experience provided continuous lessons to learn the attitude of contentment. In time of being in need, being hungry, or being in want, he learnt contentment. But even times of plenty, being well-fed, living in plentiful, he learnt to be in contentment. The need to learn contentment in the midst of wealth and abundance doesn't seem immediately apparent, does it? But we know that the temptation with wealth and prosperity is that it can lead you to feel like you can have, never have enough wealth or prosperity. The reality of our sinful hearts is that wealth can breed discontentment as we're tempted to covet the person above us who has that higher salary, that nicer car, that bigger home. So particularly in times of wealth, poor is content and not greedy. Paul's contentment in all circumstances was not a passive acceptance of his circumstances. It wasn't a passive, complacent, whatever will be, will be attitude. The secret to his contentment was an active trust that Christ gives him the strength. Verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's in the ups and downs of life that Jesus empowers him to be content, to be satisfied, to be at peace with God in all situations. The question is how? How does Jesus empower us to be satisfied and be at peace with God in all situations? A common way that we try to be content is to compare ourselves with those in less favourable conditions. We say things like, we're very fortunate to live in Sydney compared to other cities. Or we say that we're very fortunate to live such long lives with our health system and our lifestyle compared to other places. I call this the, I could be worse off mentality to contentment. And Christians do this as well, don't we? We do this. But if our joy and peace is only founded in the I could be worse off mentality, then our contentment is at best situational. See, true contentment doesn't come by comparing what we have compared to others, but comparing with what we deserve with our sins. That means we find true contentment in the gospel of Jesus, by not comparing what we have compared to others, 
but comparing what we have to what our sin deserves. The gospel of Jesus tells us that we are spiritually wretched, broken, rebellious before God who loves us and who has created us. And in our rejection of God, we are deserving of God's rejection. But in his boundless grace and mercy, God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ to free us from our destruction and to save us into his family and receive his eternal riches. We who deserve eternal punishment receive an eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Christ, the divine message that in Christ we don't get what we deserve as sinners. And that supernaturally strengthens and empowers you to be content in poverty or in wealth, to be content regardless of where you sit in comparison to others. Now, at this point, you might be asking yourself, so where does ambition fit in with the Christian life? Is being ambitious and being content compatible? Paul, in chapter 3, we've learnt cause to be ambitiously straining, pressing on towards the goal, that is Christ. But now, a chapter later, he calls us to be content in all situations. So is Paul contradicting himself? Well, he's not. Because he's saying you can be both ambitious and content. They are not mutually exclusive. And so when Paul says in chapter 3, strain forward to what lies ahead, you could say that he's saying, be hungry for more. In chapter 4, he's saying, in whatever situation I am to be content, he's also saying, be happy with where you are. And they're not contradictory. So in other words, Paul is saying, be hungry for more, but be happy with less. Be hungry for more, but be happy with less. See, a content person ambitiously still wants to do better and be better, but he doesn't pin all his hopes and dreams on his ambitious goals and desires. He is at the same time grateful to God for what he has who he is, and where he is in life, even if that is all he'll ever have. See, a content person is hungry for more and happy with less. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, says it like this, if we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. A content person desires for more. But if he has not what he desires, he knows that already he has more than what he deserves in Christ Jesus. And this is the key to discerning between godly and selfish ambition. Godly ambition is when you want to do more for God, whether it be in the workplace, in the home, or in the church. But you can be satisfied and rest peacefully when those ambitions are unfulfilled. Because if they remain unfulfilled, that's God's business, isn't it? Godly ambition is aspiring for more while resting peacefully in what God provides. Godly ambition becomes selfish ambitions when you want to do more for God but are unsatisfied and restless when those ambitions are unfulfilled. You're putting all your hopes and dreams on your supposedly godly goals and desires and not on God himself. 
The difference between godly ambition and selfish ambition is contentment. Selfish ambition drives you to be hungry for more, but never happy with less. Selfish ambition drives you to go from job to job, relationship to relationship, church to church, hungry for more, seemingly very godly, but never ever happy with less. But godly ambition triumphs selfish ambition when there is gospel-empowered contentment. Godly ambition says if we have not what we desire, we have more than what we deserve. At Chapel Hill, we want to gather people who are ambitious for God. We always want to be hungry for more. But we will also mean that we will always be happy with less. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. He brings on springtime, He brings on wintertime. Who is it I to say we will go this way or that way? It is all the Lord's business. Who are we to know the mind of Christ? It is the Lord who is sovereign. But in the times and situations where it is not going to plan, and in all times and in all situations, our church community can rejoice and be at peace even if we don't have what we desire for Chapel Hill because in the gospel we already have more than what we deserve. Therefore, we can believe and proclaim what Paul says we can rejoice in the Lord always. Always in the Lord we can rejoice because always we have more than what we deserve. And so Paul now ends his letter by returning to the theme of Christian partnership. Partnership was a common practice in the city of Philippi. As a Roman colony, Philippi had a culture of forming political partnerships where the patricians, the elites, and the plebeians, the plebs, form partnerships to each serve each other's self-interest and self-ambition. Paul teaches us that believers of Christ, we are to have a different kind of partnership. We are to, we are to work together, not for self-interest or self-ambition, but together in self-sacrifice and humility for the interest of Christ, that we stand firm in Christ to witness for Christ in a hostile world. And this will mean that our partnership in Christ will mean that we are to be a fellowship of suffering. Verse 14, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Jesus Christ suffered to save a world that was hostile to him. And that means as followers of Jesus, we would also face difficulty, trials and hardship to share the message of Christ to a hostile world. So as we partner with each other to share the gospel message, we would share in each other's trials as we share in Christ's own trials and suffering. And the way that we share in each other's trials and suffering as we stand firm to be a witness for Christ is being a fellowship of giving and receiving. Verse 15, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, 
you sent aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desired your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me. The language of giving and receiving, credit and account, look, they're all financial terms. And so the Philippian church had supported Paul's ministry financially, which no other church had known. The Philippian church was very generous financially. They even gave him additional financial support when he was in Thessalonica. But Paul is not excited about the Philippian church because they made his bank balance go up. Like Paul says, he's not looking for a financial gift. Paul is excited because the Philippian church is giving their money away for the gospel so that the gospel could go to the ends of this world. It shows how they value the gospel. Their earthly bank balances is going down, but their account in the things of Christ is going up. It's being credited. In fact, it's skyrocketing. They are storing up treasures in heaven. They are living for Christ. And that's how we want to live. Because when we get to the new creation, what good will our Aussie dollar be then? I mean, flashing our $100 bills on the day of Christ, really how pointless will that be? We no longer value the wealth of this world. We value the wealth in the gospel of Christ. In some sense, we've changed currency. We're not storing up Australian or foreign currencies. We're storing up riches in heaven. And so the best thing that we could do with our money is to give it away for the gospel, to exchange our earthly currency to treasure the spiritual wealth we have in Christ. And when we give away our money for the gospel, God loves it. God loves it. When we exchange our earthly currency to treasure Christ, we become a fellowship that is pleasing to God. God loves it. We'd read, read it with me at the end of verse 18. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And when we give to gospel ministry, it is like we're giving a beautiful bouquet of flowers being sent to the doors of heaven for God. God is delighted in the Philippians when he, they are giving so generously for the gospel. The Philippian church is using their wallets for the sake of Christ and God loves it. And that is what matters. God delights in them will overflow on the day of Christ. On the day of Christ, God will give them the riches that is in his son. Verse 19 and God will meet all of my needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. On the day of Christ, God's delight in his people will burst forth. And that's an extraordinary prospect that God will give to his people according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Let me give you an example. It's kind of like Bill Gates saying, he will buy you a Christmas present according to his riches, according to his bank account. And according to his bank account, you're probably not going to get a packet of undies or socks. On the day of Christ, God will give to us according to the Son's riches. He will meet all of our needs. And so what would that look like? 
Well, it's the kind of things that Paul has said in his letter on what will happen when Christ returns. Out of God's riches in Christ, we'll be presented holy, pure, and blameless. Nowhere will our sin be seen. We'll be filled with the fruits of righteousness. We'll be resurrected. We'll be plucked from our graves. We'll be given new bodies, made to be like Jesus for all of eternity. This is how the delight of God will overflow to his people. And all of this will be to God's glory. If you've watched the Ellen DeGeneres show, you would know that on the show, Ellen would time to time will give away extraordinary gifts and prizes to uh, the audience members. And you'll see the camera pan to the audience members and they're absolutely losing the plot. You know, they're laughing, they're screaming, they're so overjoyed to receive such exuberant gifts. And as a viewer, you would think that Ellen is a very generous person until they show the sponsorship signs. And you realise that it's the sponsors, the companies that are actually footing the bill. On the day of Christ, we will be showered with the riches of God, gifts that no talk show could ever give away, no company, no sponsorship could ever pay for. For all the riches that we have in Christ, God pay for it himself. And it cost him dearly. His own blood had to flow down from his hands and feet. He had to gasp for air as he hung on the cross. Our Lord Jesus gave up his life and he paid for us literally with his life. Therefore, to him be the glory forever and ever. See, we can be content in Christ. We can be free to give generously to Christ because God gives us accordingly to the riches in Christ. Is that true of you? If that's not true of you, then you're just missing out. You're probably stuck with clinging onto the wealth and contentment of this life a wealth that will not last and cannot satisfy. And so trade it in. Change your currencies today. Do it at church. Change to live for the riches in Christ by giving to church and other gospel ministries. God loves it all. Please join me in prayer. Our God, our Father, we thank you for the extraordinary riches that we have in Christ. Father, as we eagerly await the day of Christ, help us to be content in the extraordinary abundance and riches we have in you. And so in our spiritual abundance, help us to use our money, time and talents for the gospel to go out to our city and our world to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.